Yeah. <laughs> it was metal. <laughs> it was fucking metal. Yeah. All right, we should start the real podcast. I suppose. Yeah. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Refried Reviews. I'm John. I'm JP. And uh, today we're uh, we're we're doing. This is like four or five or six actually we're on we're on the sixth good movie in a row <laughs> um, wow we're on a streak guys um yeah we uh we watched uh 2001 a space odyssey which i'd seen a couple of times um but uh yeah i'm, I'm glad that this is probably the first time i really really watched it now that I, I i feel like i at the risk of sounding pretentious but you guys are probably used to that by now it's episode 13 <laughs> um i feel like i've got a much more advanced film vocabulary than i did when i first watched this and i um i i, I got way way more out of it this time um but uh yeah it was fucking fantastic stanley kubrick 1970 i believe um, uh, somewhere on 69 or 70 yeah. flopped when it first came out Oh, did it really? Um, yeah, it did really bad. And then uh, people... It was back in the day when like there just weren't as many movies being made. Mm-hmm. So people... Uh, they kept it in theaters longer, even though it was flopping. Um, and it gained this weird second life. Because, like fucking stoner kids started showing up like late at night and the exhibitors started reporting back to the distributor like uh who was this warner brothers um yeah i think pretty much all the kubrick ones are i think okay yeah. that big box set is a warner one. Oh, okay yeah 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 so they reported back to warner brothers like uh something's happening with your movie and so they re-released uh they they <laughs> Lazarium put profits are down <laughs> 2001 profits are up we yeah. don't know what's going on <laughs> So yeah, they they put out a new poster that uh, that said it was 2001, and it had that picture of uh, Bowman's eye on it with the weird filter on it, oh. um, and it said the ultimate trip. <laughs> and nice. then it fucking made a lot of money and became a huge hit. Um, so yeah, that's the history of it. When when did you first see this thing? Uh, well, I was sort of um, big into Kubrick in high school. Like he was he was sort of I guess would be my introduction into more classic you know highbrow film kind of stuff and i just i i think i just encountered it as i was going through the catalog Uh, i don't remember having like a special moment where i stumbled onto 2001 Mm -hmm. i mean i i knew it was a a pop culture thing like like everything had been spoofed on the simpsons and that kind of stuff yeah um so sort of similarly to as you were saying i've i've seen it a few times um but this this was the first time in a few years, and I did feel like I had a greater appreciation for sort of what it was trying to do, and maybe in historical context, especially what it was trying to do. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I want to talk a lot about the context of this film. Yeah, and I, I also watched it with the um, uh, the overture and the intermission music and all that. So yeah, I, 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 I did the full pretension as well. <laughs> um. Yeah. So it, it's probably the the first time I'd done that in quite a while. Yeah. I uh, first saw it... I'm not even sure when. I think I I first started making a serious effort to, like, watch films um, probably around the same time you did, around, like, 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn it, I'm going to watch, like, good films. <laughs> and I didn't get most of them. Like, I really didn't like The Shining the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like it was bloody enough. I didn't like there was only one kill in it. And there's, there's quite a lot going on there. And yeah. not all of it, you know, like, just high-tension scares. Mm. Yeah, and I, I just didn't have the equipment to, in my brain <laughs> to, like, get why The Shining is as good as it is. And now I get, like, no, The Shining's fucking fantastic. Yeah. It's probably my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. Um, this is a close second now, though. Um, I guess I watched it again in college 
still didn't quite get it. I was like, this just feels very cold and mm-hmm. distant to me. I'm not really engaged with this. And I, I actually, my main complaint was always the last 20 minutes. The, mm-hmm. the, the, what I'll call part four. Because the, <laughs> the, the movie kind of divides into four parts. There's the part one with the hominids. Part two with, uh, what's his name? Um, Haywood. Haywood Floyd um, on the moon. <laughs> the PR storyline. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. And then part three, which is Bowman and Booth versus Hal. And then part four, which is Bowman through the Stargate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always felt like Bowman through the Stargate was just unnecessarily opaque. And I didn't like, you know, I'm all for ambiguity. Um, like, I, I really enjoy Twin Peaks. I'll watch a David Lynch movie. But, like, I didn't like that. I didn't I didn't at the time feel that you could get a good read on what the images you were seeing meant. Mm-hmm. So one of the main reasons I wanted to watch this again was um, as a little bit of an experiment. Because I was reading up on the production history of the, of the uh, film and the book. And uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote 2001, the book... And I think worked with Kubrick on the script itself, too. It was between them, yeah. Yeah, they collaborated on the story very intensely. And like Arthur C. Clarke, now, if you buy uh, the newest audiobook of 2001, there's a whole section at the beginning of Arthur C. Clarke talking about what it was like to collaborate with Kubrick on this and how like Kubrick was changing script notes based on Clark's book and everything and how they were supposed to kind of the book and the film are supposed to be companion pieces. So I was like, okay, well this could be a really interesting way to cinematically have your cake and eat it too. Um, because if the book is sort of carrying the narrative thrust of the, the Stargate sequence and sort of laying out like, no, here's what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Um, then that sort of lets the film, Beam way more subjective and imagistic and lets, lets the film put you in Bowman's head. And also you kind of have this context in the back of your head for what's actually happening to him. But the film is showing you the experiences as he's experiencing. And because as, uh, as someone else made the point to me, like Bowman probably doesn't know what's happening to him either. Right. So, um, you're right there with him. And that's a pretty rare case for Kubrick who, uh, a lot of times the ambiguities in his movies stay that way because even his adaptations are so tightly controlled under him yeah so to have any one of his projects have a collaborator and a sequel book that explained what was happening in the first one yeah and it's definitely Rich, a, have you ever seen the movie of 2010 i have not i watched it like on tnt way back in the day i would really really like to sit through that at some point i've heard that it's uh it's merely good Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a pretty good space movie. Yeah, I've never heard great things about it. But like, I'd, I'd still watch it. Yeah, it's yeah. Roy Schneider in space. It's why I haven't seeked it out, is because I haven't heard great yeah. things. But I, I would watch it. Anyway, um, so yeah, that was sort of the, the idea behind why I wanted to do this whole thing. Um, and I guess before, uh, we'll, we'll kind of fly through the plot, because if you're, if you've seen, you guys have seen 2001. <laughs> like, if you haven't, go now. Turn this off. Go watch 2001 right this second. <laughs> but, um... One of the big things I noticed about it was uh, the, sort of in the context of science fiction at the time, the rigor of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, because this comes from a time when science fiction literature was much more serious than science fiction film. Science fiction film was sort of still stuck in... Uh, in wood. Yeah, well, better than that. But it was, <laughs> right. it was like in this island Earthland, basically. Like Star Trek was probably the most prominent science fiction at the time, mm-hmm. which was good. But it was still kind of whiz-bangy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, whereas science fiction literature um, by guys like Cord- Cordwainer Smith and Arthur C. Clarke, and I don't know if Philip K. Dick was writing yet, um, 
But they were all about like, we're going to take this very seriously and we're going to apply a lot of rigor to it. And like, (laughs) we are going to explain how this works and we're going to deal with serious men doing serious things. (laughs) Um, And this, when like you think about this as Kubrick's attempt to bring that spirit to the screen, I think it shines even more um, because it it definitely, it feels that way. Um, Well, I mean, I guess this, this is a good time. I'll I'll be the first one to throw out uh, Alien was a movie I thought of constantly when watching this. Because it really is amazing how little the sort of space aesthetic has changed since these two movies that were, you know, 40 some odd years ago. And Alien, I mean, Alien, I think, could be taken as a contrast to this Mm -hmm. because of how, like, uh, working class Alien is. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite things about Alien is that it's kind of messy. Like, I mean, it, it certainly looks like maybe you took one of the 2001 ships and, uh, you know, sold it secondhand to a mining company. Yeah. And, but, like, the just the, the sort of hexagonal doors that slide apart, like, yeah. there's there's so much that if, if it was in the background of Moon or, like, some other similar science fiction movie, it would not look out of place at all. It like, is very, like, space is usually portrayed as one or the other. It's either Alien or it's uh, or it's 2001 <laughs> mm-hmm. or it's the Millennium Falcon, which is basically, I mean, Alien and Millennium Falcon are doing kind of similar things in terms of like <laughs> what if space was kind of grimy right? because um, people are sort of gross and like maybe they'll spill their cereal. Um, no, those no, ships are up there for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get stinky. Um, but no one, no one on Discovery spilled their cereal because it was all in neat little pouches. Um, which, which is another thing about it I liked. like the whole movie's just so fucking thought out, yeah, you know, like but it 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 also like in terms of technique, I guess we'll uh, to go through the sections, section one is the hominids, and in the book the this section goes way more into what that monolith does mm-hmm. so to give a real quick synopsis of the hominid section we start on these hominids and they're like trying to eat leaves and shit and it's not going well for them the book makes it even clearer that like these little bands of hominids are going to die mm-hmm. um they're trying to survive off of bark they roving have a, in small gangs yeah they have a leopard that stalks them constantly and they live in fear of it and then they compete there's some other uh, hominids that live across the river in the book and like near a water hole in the film that they sort of compete for resources with and they're constantly shouting at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically in the film, one night this monolith shows up and uh, it sort of gives one of the hominids the idea to start using bones as tools. And since like nothing in the ecosystem around him is prepared for that, he can just sort of <laughs> beat animals to death and consume their flesh with, while others just sort of stick around. Mm-hmm. Cause like, they're just like, Oh, I have no idea what happened to that guy. Um, <laughs> I can't even make a connection. Um, and then they use it to like defeat their rivals and everything. And then it's sort of like, this is the beginning of man ascending. And it's made pretty clear that it's because this monolith showed up. So it's like um, the, the evolutionary jump machine. Yeah. Kinda... The, uh, the book makes it way more explicit. Sure. Like in the book, the, uh, the monolith shows up and it's the middle of the night. And one of the Muhammadids who the book calls moon watcher, just so it can call him something, mm-hmm. um, gets up and he starts like, you know, inspecting it and he touches it and it like starts displaying lights and everything. And then one of the things it does, is it starts broadcasting a hypnotic signal into the hominids so that they all stand obediently and then it displays a target on its face and it asks them to pick up a rock and throw it at the target 
And the ones that can hit the target, it thinks have better motor skills. So it discards the others and like lets them go. It's a little bit last starfighter. It's a little last starfighter actually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it works with them. The other main difference is that uh, they, in the book, they use the tools to defeat the leopard. Mm -hmm. And then when they attack the other hominids, they actually stick the leopard's head on a pike (laughs) and run at the other hominids with it. Wow. Yeah. As a form of psychological warfare. Wow. Um, Which I advanced far. (laughs) Yes. In like a week. Um, But yeah. um, So that's the basics of that section. But the main thing that struck me about this section, and jump in please, is um, is like the the way it just uses really, really elegant framing to tell the whole story. Like it stays really wide. There's um, the very first shot is uh, actually even before we're on the hominids. um, We start on the biggest one point perspective shot ever. (laughs) Um, It's just like earth and then moon and then Stanley Kubrick's name as the music climaxes. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Just letting us know what's going on. And then I love how when the monolith shows up, like it cuts through the top of the frame and it's just this big black geometric bar, like in a world where everything else is jagged and organic looking. It's just this fucking clearly manufactured thing. It's like uh, the the book expresses it really well by saying that uh, when Moonwatcher throws a rock at the, uh, I think he like hits the monolith or something or throws a rock at it. He says that uh, the uh, at that moment a sound is heard that had never been heard on Earth before, mm-hmm. which is the which is a clang. Of hmm. uh, rock against metal, mm-hmm. um, and like nothing had ever clanged before. Right, then. right. Um, and I love that. Yeah, and yeah. like that that shot, framing wise, sort of does the same thing. Um, and it, it sort of moves like a symphony. We've got these long locked off shots. There's not a whole lot of camera motion. It's really deliberate in terms of framing. Um, I uh, I just I just love all that. I mean, what do you think of the hominid sequence? Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of it's very engaging for something with with no words certainly um as the the shot you mentioned before of the monolith through space it i thought it was very effective i wondered what what that looked like in like the vhs days yeah because i was watching the blu-ray and it was still sort of like what is that like because it's just sort of blocking out stars to begin with so it's kind of hard to tell what's going on oh at the very very beginning yeah yeah yeah, when it's first moving um and i guess just just to to mention that opening shot like it it certainly feels pretentious to begin with his name on there, but it's funny that it's like the feedback loop of everything has mimicked that movie, yeah, to sort of show that this is the story of all time, yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> this um, is the story of man. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I thought the the sequence was certainly interesting. I agree with you that it 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 seemed clearer the motivations and stuff moving through it as i was a little older whereas when i was younger i I think it was sort of lost on me what was going on yeah and it uh it definitely makes a lot of use of uh of just editing and cutting to help you make connections like whenever the hominid is looking at the bones it just cuts to the monolith and then cuts back and it just lets you know like the monolith is helping him make a connection. That's all you need is mm-hmm. just a cut. Oh, remember there was that big fucking monolith? Yeah, it might have something <laughs> to do with this. Okay. Um, it's something that uh, that Kubrick was really, really respectful of and something I honestly only in the last like six months to a year have gotten conscious of in a way that I, I really feel like I can wrap my head around it is the degree of inference that goes into a really good film. Mm-hmm. Like, it's something 
that we're not conscious of as we watch a film, but we're making all these connections. Like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's famous example is cutting from a picture of Alfred Hitchcock smiling to a picture of a little girl eating ice cream. And then back to Hitchcock smiling, you make the connection that he's smiling, but maybe, maybe that's his daughter. And uh, he's smiling because the kid's happy. But if you replace the image of the kid eating ice cream with an image of uh, a girl in a bikini, now he's a dirty old man. Mm -hmm. And, like, nothing about him has changed in those images, but you're making different inferences based on that. And I think that uh, Kubrick is using that to his advantage here, just left and right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, that's that's the hominid section. Um, it's, It's a great... Uh, I think primer on the techniques that uh, that Kubrick's going to use throughout the film, um, and the way he's just going to this is this is going to move in a certain way. He's sort of he's a little bit teaching you how to watch the movie, mm-hmm. um, and then from there we go to the Haywood Floyd section. Well, um, I guess not, not to jump too oh, far yeah, ahead, yeah, yeah. but just sort of on on that note, um, th- this will have a lot to do with sort of the light show at the end. But one of the one of the the ways I feel I view it differently now that I'm older is that the movie is much more of sort of a media showcase almost more than, than just a simple movie where like with the overture at the beginning, it's a big swing and dick of a movie. Yeah. (laughs) Where like it, it almost, it doesn't feel, it feels more like a presentation Mm. than a movie or like sort of, as you're saying it, there, there are different rules of inference and it reminds me of something like opera where, like you have to sort of make these connections without them being explicitly told to you because of the form and because of yeah. uh, just tropes and things like that. Also, there's an overture. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but sort of the, the movie to me in, in a big way is much more experiential than a lot of just sort of straightforward narratives. Yeah. 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 They, he, he wants to immerse you in the world mm-hmm. and he wants to, he, there's such a confidence to his framing, you know, there's uh, uh and it's something, um, excuse me. Um, it's a uh, something I want to get back to later, um, just the confidence with which he frames things because he's so restrained because he just believes in everything he's putting up there. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's such intent behind it. Um, and I, I almost feel like I'm reading too much into what Kubrick was trying to do with the film. <laughs> but like I, I want to get back to that notion of confidence and how it contrasts with uh, with modern filmmaking in a bit um, when we get to the Dave Moment and Frank Booth section. But for now... Um, I want to talk about my, probably my favorite section of the whole movie, just in terms of like, as a sci-fi fan, Sure, the Haywood Floyd stuff is great. <laughs> I love everything about it. Like how he's on the space station, like dodging these rumors of a plague with the Russians <laughs> and being like, I can't verify that. And like totally like false flagging them mm-hmm. and like sending them off on this rabbit trail. Cause they're going to go back to the crew and be like, there's totally a plague on the American moon base. And he's like, yeah, it's just as I intended. Um, and then we get all that great Blue Danube stuff where I wrote the bone is the ship is the pen. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the the longest cut forward in uh, film history. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> also, I really liked how during that, I don't know if you noticed during that whole like uh, docking sequence with the Blue Danube, the stewardess, while she's walking on her Velcro shoes, she stutter steps like a ballerina. Really? Yeah, like she's got this... Sort of thing going on, and it feels very balletic. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure that was a deliberate choice mm-hmm. um, because the whole thing is it's it's opera, um, and the way the music swells and everything, it's just it's just <laughs> fucking magnificent. Yeah, as they lock in uh, the station and the uh, and the ship. Um, 
Also, I, I, there are a couple of little like little things he did that kind of felt weird. Like I don't know if you noticed, but in the shuttle cockpit, there's like a really really wide lens on the camera, mm-hmm. and I don't really know why. Um, it just sort of distorted things. I'm I'm trying to figure out why. The other weird thing I noticed is whenever Haywood meets the Russians, as he sits down, it mm-hmm. jump cuts in on him, and I don't know why they did that either. Um, it definitely feels a little disorienting. And I mean, he's got all this coverage there and everything, but like it, 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 it's something I, I, I don't know why. And I was wondering if you picked up on it, A and B, if you knew why he would do it. I mean, I, I couldn't say for sure. I mean, if, if something is, is a big expansive shot, it could always be that like there are matte paintings in the background or something yeah. like that, where they're a little worried if the audience has too long to look at it. Yeah, I mean that might be one explanation. I, I certainly couldn't couldn't say like why the for matte sure. paintings that were definitely behind the hominids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lost art. Yeah, sorry. I mean I guess people do digital matte paintings, but yeah, I mean they, they looked great, Stan, but you didn't quite fool us. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, the thing I love about this section is is just the, the the way it calls back to that rigorous Arthur C. Clarke sci-fi and that Cordwainer Smith sci-fi. And all the, like, as we learn what TMA1 is, and we kind of lay the whole thing out. Um, also, uh, one thing I noticed, uh, or, or two things I, I, I just wanted to call out. Whenever we're on the shuttle to the moon, uh, a stewardess is watching karate on TV. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down as well. <laughs> it's going to be big. <laughs> well, it, it definitely feels like uh, almost an early hint of the... Uh, you know, Firefly and like sort of assimilating the Asian culture in. Yeah. It's yeah. funny that they picked up on that that early. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I love is that like throughout the movie, and I know there's there's the, the story of the, the score, just to run it down real quick, uh, there was a score written for this film that you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, but when uh, they were cutting, just like you frequently do when you're making a film, you put in temp tracks just so you can cut to something and then you put your score in later. Um, but, uh, they put on all these temp tracks of classical music and then Stanley Kubrick watched it and was apparently like, no, I like this better. These are all public domain, right? <laughs> and someone said yes. And he's like, fuck it. <laughs> Sorry, composer. You'll still get your check, but, uh, none of it's going to be in the movie. Yeah. And from the sound of the story, I mean, if you want to enjoy the, uh, blood, sweat and tears of someone tormented, you should listen to that score. Really? Because it was like, there were some crazy stories about that. That that guy, I think, was pretty sick during that period. Ooh. And like, the uh, apparently the stress made it considerably worse. So he would take an ambulance back and forth to the recording studio. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I heard this story a couple times from a couple different people. Like, one of them was uh, touring with a Kubrick book and stuff. So I, I'm not sure which story is exactly true. But I believe the first time he knew for sure that none of his music made it in was the premiere night. Wow. Like, I don't think it was a total surprise. Like, he had no idea they weren't considering using it. Yeah. But I think... Kubrick was sort of like, no, we're we're probably going to stick with all classical, and the guy was just believed he could do something important and delivered on it anyway, and then you know saw the movie without the music. God, that sucks. Yeah, I'm sorry, guy. He probably <laughs> died like a week later too. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, Stanley Kubrick killed a guy. That's what that that's what that means. That's I mean, all at I least one. We're probably lucky. Shelley Duvall still with us. Based yeah, on the, the stories of that. I mean, he was like. He's an amazing director, maybe the best director ever. Um, I mean, I, he's not my favorite, but <laughs> he, you could make an argument, excuse me, that he's the best. Um, but he's a huge. He was a huge asshole. Like <laughs> it seems he was that way. He was not a good person. <clears throat> Let's make no mistake. <laughs> it certainly seems like um, 
almost in like a Steve Jobs kind of way. Like he was willing to put people through what they needed to go through to get the performance he wanted. Yeah. Like if that involved him treating you like a dick for three months, that's what he did. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was more personal than that. Of He just was an asshole. But. Yeah, he was a heartless bastard and maybe the best filmmaker that ever lived. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, man. Sometimes, mm. you know, if you're, if you're going to make an omelet, sometimes you have to drive a few people insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's the saying, right? Yeah, yeah. it is now. <laughs> so just uh, some jump in on the, on the moon. If, uh, <laughs> jump in on the moon section if you, uh, if, you, if you have anything. But I just wanted mm-hmm. to sort of rapid fire a couple of things I noticed. Um, the first thing is uh, about the classical music that I really love about it, which, sorry, guy, is <laughs> it grounds us in this tradition of human thought. Like, at the beginning, we're, it's made clear, like, we're going to watch the story of man. And hearing all this classical music made me very conscious of Einstein and Newton and Faraday and all these people that came before who made what I'm watching possible. It does um, sort of resonate with just, like... Whether it's uh, hominids or whether it's classical music composers, it's all kind of lumped in with, like, shit well before our lifetime. Yeah. So, like, it it is funny how it all kind of resonates together. Yeah, there's a continuity to the whole thing, which Mm -hmm. I love. Um, The second thing I noticed is, good God, there is so much fucking one-point perspective in this movie. (laughs) Stanley Kubrick, your boner for one-point perspective is noted, (laughs) but it's all so perfectly composed. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. and then, uh, then I noticed, like in the in the in the initial meeting about TMA one, where they're in that like Doctor Strange Love esque weird little conference room, because <laughs> Stanley Kubrick loves a conference room that's lit weirdly. Um, there, uh, he's just not all about close ups in this film. There mm-hmm. are not a lot of them, at least in the first section before we get in with Frank and Dave later. Um, but it like, feels pretty procedural. Yes, even the close ups is like here's two nondescript white dudes who sound the same talking to one another. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes you can't even hear them. Um, <laughs> Which, speaking of which, that's, uh, well, uh, the, the other thing I really like about later when they actually go out to TMA1, um, the, I love the fact that they're talking, but we can't hear them. Mm-hmm. It's, they're the hominids again. Like, yeah, yeah. we've reduced them to that. And there's, there's a very good, like, nice little echo going on there. Um, the other two things that I noticed is in, in, before they go out to TMA1 is, uh, first up, um, we're just going to not worry about moon gravity. And I just, I bet that really bugged Stanley Kubrick that like mm-hmm. he, I bet he tried to figure out a way to rig people. So they'd bounce when they walked or something <laughs> and he just couldn't. And he was like, fuck it. Fine. Um, <laughs> but you know, that pissed him off. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is I would like the movie better if Haywood Floyd was played by Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly be more personable. Yeah. It'd be good. You know, because he's such like an all American affable dude. who's just like, I'm just going out to the moon. Maybe some aliens left a thing. Do you think at the time people had as good of general knowledge about, like, gravity and that you would be lighter on the moon and stuff like that? I'm pretty sure this movie came out after the moon landing. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I still... I, I You're not wrong. Like, I'm sure it was, it was well into the zeitgeist by then. But just in terms of people's general knowledge of outer space, I wonder if... I think people were generally more taken with space. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the level of general knowledge was actually pretty high That then. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like... I mean, I don't know if you know this, but when we landed on the moon, it was a pretty big fucking deal. Right. So <laughs> I'm just, it's weird talking about things from before we were born and assuming we know about them. <laughs> it is true. It is true. Like, uh, it reminds me, the most extreme example of that I heard, and this is has nothing to do with the movie, but I'll share it anyway because it's fucking fascinating, mm-hmm. is um, that, you know, recently we discovered that the universe is expanding and that expansion is accelerating. 
Mm-hmm. So everything's moving away from us, and it's getting faster and faster and faster. Um, eventually, down the line, that acceleration is going to exceed the speed of light, um, which nothing can, whatever, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's going to end up getting so fast that the light coming off of those stars that are receding from us, when they're shooting back, when that light's shooting back at us at the speed of light, it won't be going fast enough to ever get to us. Because it'll it will have started oh, going the other direction so right, quickly. Right. So millennia from now, people are going to look up in the sky if there are still people and not see any stars, and they're going to read our accounts of stars, and they're going to think we were crazy <laughs> because we talked about all these weird things in the sky called stars that were lights huh. or something, and they're just going to be like, well, clearly they were in error. And it makes me think, like, what do we think we know? That is just an accident of the moment, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very true that even as we study things, it's hard to know if you're looking at the right scale yeah. in the right time scale. <laughs> like, we could always be looking at, oh, what happened in this fraction of a second when the phenomenon that we're searching for happens over thousands of years or yeah. whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Yeah. It really is clutching in the dark a lot more than science, you know. Well, not that it would admit, but... Than most people think yeah, I was of say, science, science as. Is, science is pretty clear about that. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you read it, like, their science is like, listen, we don't know much. <laughs> but <laughs> just, I guess, the tendency to assume that we're at a time where we sort of know most stuff. Yeah. And science is kind of figuring out the rest. Like, I think it's always felt like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Like, right before, uh, one of my favorite science stories is that uh, in, like, at the end of the 19th century, um, people were pretty convinced science was over. Uh-huh. <laughs> like there were a lot of journals about how, cause at the time well, our theory, knowledge is done. <laughs> yeah. Like at the time, our going theory about space was that there was a medium in space called ether and that, uh, like light and stuff passed through, through the ether. And all we really needed to figure out was what the ether's properties were. And then we could pretty much put a lid on this whole science thing. You were going to be done. And then <laughs> Einstein came along and was like, actually guys, <laughs> I see closing a giant hardcover book with just facts on the cover. <laughs> And John Hodgman is closing it. Um, that's what he's for. Um, anyway, now back to the movie. Yes. Um, so there's that, uh, the, the, the TMA one. I guess to explain the TMA one thing, right at the, uh, the, the, the American moon base has leaked the story that there's a plague on it so that they won't be bothered. But what they've actually found is TMA one, which stands for Tycho magnetic anomaly, uh, because it was found in the Tycho crater named after the astronomer Tycho Brahe. Again, call back to scientists of yore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's this big, uh, magnetic field. And so they went out and they dug because it was under, uh, it was underground on the moon and it was like 20 feet deep and it was another monolith. And the thing I love about TMA one is the elegance with which it operates. Like basically the idea is that alien, the, the, the monolith aliens, the same ones that empowered the hominids put it there. And the theory was like, eventually these little humans, they're going to get to the moon and if they have the technology to get to the moon, they're going to have the technology to detect magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to find this big fucking magnetic field <laughs> we put there. And we're also going to install a solar battery on it and a radio transmitter um, so that once they dig it up, because they will, mm-hmm. um, the sun will hit it and that'll activate the radio transmitter and that will send a signal to uh to the the third monolith out in the orbit of jupiter in the movie saturn in the book um 
actually not even in the orbit of Saturn in the book. It's on the moon Enceladus in the book. Um, huh. Like he actually has to take the pod down onto the moon and find the monolith there. It's very, very cool. Hmm. Um, yeah. And there's like, there's this great sequence where he's going down to the monolith and it's like a much, much bigger monolith. It's like the size of a building. And then it uh, like, if you can imagine like the, the perspective of the monolith rising up at you reverses and it becomes a whole in the moment. Okay. And then it sucks him in. And that's where the line, my God, it's full of stars comes from. Cause as soon as he goes down in there, his first comment and the very last transmission they get from Dave Bowman in the book is my God, it's full of stars, <laughs> huh. which he never says in the movie. Yeah, really? Yeah. Um, it's impressive that it became pop culture or anything. Yeah. <laughs> everybody thinks it's in the movie. It's not <laughs> even in there. It's the play it against Sam of 2001. <laughs> but anyway, um, I love that idea that the, that like the, the, the elegance of the TMA one monolith and how it works. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's really, really cool stuff. And that's all Arthur C. Clarke. If you'd really like Arthur C. Clarke guys, might I recommend rendezvous with Rama or childhood's end? Um, both really, really fantastic books. Rendezvous with Rama kicks ass. Morgan Freeman's been trying to make a movie out of it for like 15 years. Really? Yeah. Morgan Freeman loves Rendezvous with Rama. <laughs> nice. He's not wrong. It's awesome. Um, it's really, really good. Um, but anyway, uh, well, planting it on the moon does, it sounds a little bit like a serial killer leaving clues or something like a little bit. I do yeah. question the motivation, but yeah, it's it an got interesting. Us to the Stargate, <laughs> you know, so the idea was that it would shoot off this radio signal and we'd be able to follow that signal. Um, and that's what it does. And then we cut to like a year later and we're on board the, uh, the, the ship discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's headed out to Jupiter. Um, and the, I think the, 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 the reason Dave Bowman and Frank Booth had think it's headed out there is just to do it. Right. Um, I think so. Like the, they don't know about the monolith. They definitely don't know about the monolith. They don't know about TMA one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't remember exactly what they do know. I mean, is um, it? Do they think they're investigating something mysterious? Or no, they don't. They're just headed. Yeah, out. yeah. they definitely don't because that's why Hal goes wrong. Um, and I don't know if it's made clear in the movie, but in the book, it is that like. Um, so just real quick, guys. Uh, basically. Uh, there's two astronauts who are awake, uh, Frank Booth and Dave Bowman, and then there's three scientists who are in hibernation on the ship, um, and they're going to be awoken when they get to Jupiter. And Frank and Dave don't really know why these guys are sleeping. They don't know exactly what their mission is, but they're uh, they're doing fine. They're in regular contact with Earth. They take interviews with the news and everything, um, and they uh, have as a constant companion HAL 9000, mm-hmm. um, the most advanced supercomputer ever built. I think he was built in – doesn't he say he was built in, like, Iowa? or something um, oh, that sounds right and uh yeah he's he's a badass computer and he theoretically could run the whole ship by himself um and he's aware of that <laughs> <laughs> um frighteningly so basically uh hal gets wind hal knows what the actual mission is the actual mission is to get out there find the uh whatever tma1 was signaling and then make contact and see what it is the three uh hibernating scientists know that too but dave and frank don't Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the book makes clear, cause remember how in the film, uh, on earth they they keep saying like, we don't know why your Hal is malfunctioning. Our Hal's our, our twin Hal's on earth are doing fine. Um, in the book, they, they signal him back and, uh, they signal discovery back and say, Dave, we know why the, your Hal failed. Your Hal had to lie and ours didn't. 
um, because mm. Hal on the ship knew the true purpose of the mission, and he had to deceive Dave and Frank, and it drove him insane. Oh, interesting. Because um, he's just a stupid fucking computer. <laughs> um, Do you know, is that a real practice, like with NASA having the... Having a second computer basically run all the same calculations to just audit the first one. I don't know. I mean, they should. I thought it was an interesting idea. I'd never heard that before. I mean, it it sounds prudent. (laughs) Uh, I I would. Um, (laughs) Just for, you know, a sanity check. (laughs) Maybe your computer went bonkers. (laughs) Um, I wrote wrote down, uh, where was it? Oh, well, before, while you're looking, the main question, like the, the genuine, this is one of the only films I've ever seen where I honestly don't know how they did something. Mm-hmm. Like I get, cause there's all these shots of shifting gravity in this film and I get like, I've seen the Fred Astaire dance routine. I know you can rotate a room. <laughs> um, and I get how they do that with one person, but there's a shot here of Dave running around the wheel. Cause basically the idea is that discovery generates gravity with centrifugal force and it's just spinning all the time so that mm-hmm. people can stand. Um, and uh, there's these shots of him running around the wheel of, of discovery. And he's just sort of always running a little bit uphill. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cool because the same things pass around and I get it. You can just rotate a room like a hamster wheel, but there's this other shot where he's standing in one gravitational orientation. And then Frank Booth is like on the opposite end of the wheel and he's sitting off the wall. Hmm. And I don't know how they did that. So possible someone that was strapped in? That's the first thing I would think. I mean, maybe. Maybe he was strapped in. With but like pants it, knitted into the chair or something? Yeah, but whatever <laughs> it was, it was really, really well done. Uh, it, was, and, it was very impressive, yeah. yeah and, and and fascinating as hell. Um, I, I really, really loved that. Um, uh-huh. I'm not sure which part it's from, but I, I did write down on my notes, 10-step gravity toilet instruction manual. Didn't realize there was a joke in this movie. <laughs> 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 yeah, so they they did. It did look like they had fun with all that stuff, like the the meals with straws in them, yeah. and <laughs> building yeah. out the practicality. That was cool, <laughs> and I love like there's there's all all the this this movie is just such a feast for composition. Like there's all these things like whenever uh, the reporter is talking to Hal and talking to Dave, um, when the reporter on the monitor from Earth, mm-hmm. he like looks on the screen over at the Hal bulb. Um, <laughs> Just to, like, give you some sort of reference for, like, what he's doing. That's that's awesome. And the next thing I love in it is uh, the very first hint that Hal is going to break the way he's going to break. Because basically what happens is he, you know, like I said, he, he realizes the mission is too important to be held in human hands. He decides that he is going to uh, kill the three hibernating scientists, kill Dave and Frank, and do the whole thing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and won't <laughs> everyone be proud of him? <laughs> this is not a plan with a last step. Um, so yeah, he, uh, and there's definitely a big theme there of like, our children are going to murder us. Like he is this thing that is arguably smarter than we are and he is going to come around and he's going to destroy us. Knows what's best. And take our place. Yeah. Because he knows what's best. Like there's some singularity shit happening in a movie in (laughs) 1970. It's incredible. Yeah. But there's this moment where, uh, Hal is asking Dave all these questions and Dave asks him in response, are you working at my psych report? And there's just this moment of hesitation <laughs> before Hal says yes. And right there, that's when you know Hal has begun lying. And like then right after that, he reports that first antenna failure. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they, they have to, he says the antennas <laughs> failed. They go out, they pull the part. He said failed. It doesn't look like it's failed. Um, and then there's this great sort of argument where they're like, Hal, it looks like you were wrong. And he's like, that's impossible. I'm never wrong. 
That's mm-hmm. part of what I am. <laughs> like, definitionally, I can't be wrong. Um, but yeah, I love that little just pause of, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and the, the interview sort of leading up to when they're explaining how, and they uh, it says that uh, they can't be sure whether he has emotions. Which I thought was sort of a, a wonderfully modern way of looking at it, where most people, like, that that would sort of wash over them. Where today, that's, like, a relevant detail. Yeah. Like, we don't, we don't really know what consciousness looks like. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to say for sure whether it is somewhere or isn't. He seems to be passing the Turing test <laughs> pretty ably. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that was another thing that I thought was, was cool, that that was sort of part of the discussion so many years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, the, the there's, there's, again, a lot of use of wide lenses on Discovery. I think that it's there to help us connect with Hal's point of view because we see him in that little bulb. Like a then, surveillance kind of yeah, feel yeah, to it's it. Yeah, this all-seeing all, all eye sort of thing. Um, it's and like then, filming a movie of the mirror in the convenience store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, did you, uh, did you watch Mad Men last week? Did you uh, catch the 2001 homage? I did, yes. yes. <laughs> that made me really, really happy. Also, poor Ginsburg. We won't go into it, but uh, yeah. I mean, even the—I um, mean, this is this is obscure. But uh, do you remember in the raid when they snap on the intercom, and then like it's the police first see that the intercom is lit up, and like that the kids successfully warned that the police were in the building. Yeah, and it snaps to a shot of like the intercom with a bright red light in the middle of frame, and it was like, oh, that's a beautiful yeah. little illusion that most people won't catch. <laughs> It's, it's, it's good stuff. This movie permeates pop culture. Like yeah. I, I mean, honestly, we could record like four episodes about this. <laughs> I, I feel like we're doing it a disservice right now because we've only got an hour. Um, but we're going to do our best. Um, so the, the next thing I kind of want to call out on the Discovery side is the sound design, mm-hmm. um, especially during the spacewalks. Good God. When they're in those suits, like, I almost hyperventilated. Like, it was really, really uncomfortable. Um, just like hearing that, just like, (sighs) yeah, that was another experiential thing where I feel like when I first saw it as a movie, it was like, this is kind of annoying and stuff, but, Mm -hmm. but seeing it later, it's like, oh, okay, this is totally purposeful. (laughs) Yeah. So he sends Frank out on his second spacewalk and then God, good God, when that pod starts moving in on Frank, like just (laughs) stalking him as Hal, as Hal's just controlling the pod and he's like, I'm going to launch your ass into space now, dick. Um, (laughs) And then there was one. Yeah. Um, and this is this is another sort of thing I, I kind of want to... It's something I, I said I wanted to talk about more, and I, I haven't uh, talked about it nearly enough, is just the, the way this exists as a counterpoint to something like the shitty version would be like Armageddon. But even a modern movie like, uh, I don't know, uh, Gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is so steadfastly resisting the temptations that those films fall into because of how uh, you could say cold and detached Bowman and Booth are, but really they're just guys who are great at their job Mm -hmm. acting like guys who are great at their job. They're not quipping. They're not, you know, mugging or anything. They're just being good at their job. And the, the, the moment when all that like crystallized for me was when Dave watches Frank die on the monitor. Because any other fucking filmmaker (laughs) would have Dave give us like a, Frank! Or something like that. And he doesn't. He's just silent. Because like, first of all, like, who's he yelling to? Secondly, um, he just has a job he has to do. He's, He's got this great moment of just like, well, this is the situation. 
fuck. Yeah. Let's there, go do this. And there's a reason there aren't a ton of action movies about engineers. Yeah. Especially and realistic it, ones. Yeah. And I, but I love that he's a realistic engineer. Like, mm-hmm. he, I, I believe in this movie way more than I believe in the reality of Gravity now. Even though Gravity is a fantastic film, I love it. Um, but I believe in this because of how it resists that. Mm-hmm. And I know that was something you were talking about how the, the when before we started recording, how these were like nondescript white guys kind of talking to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what was your read on that side of this this whole section? Yeah, I mean it it, it came off to me as more practical and realistic of the time than uh, than a lack of artistry, like mm-hmm. it. Uh, you know, NASA is is very much in line with military and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So they would be clean-cut white guys talking to each other, and, you know, they would sound very similar using the same vocabulary. Yeah. And so I, I agree with what you're saying, that in terms of making an accurate depiction, it, it certainly makes more sense that they aren't throwing tons of slang back and forth and that there are established procedures and... and um, and I, I imagine it's it's part of of any space journey of like it you've pre-considered all of these scenarios yeah. and even if it's not that exact one you have your sort of protocol that you follow in the event of something like this yeah so yeah in terms of him not screaming in terms of him always seeming in control yeah I, it it certainly makes practical sense yeah the only time it really cracks is after he goes out in the pod retrieves Frank's body. And then we have the famous open the pod bay doors, Hal moment. And then it's when, like, like Dave is known for a while, like, Hal's on the fucking fritz. <laughs> um, and then Hal finally admits it. You know, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to let you in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just sort of get out on Front Street with each other. <laughs> sorry, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not going to happen. You're going to die in space. <laughs> um and then, like, they have that moment, which I had completely forgotten about, where Dave Bowman launches himself through the vacuum of space uh-huh. back into the ship, <laughs> which is badass. Yeah. Um, but the only time you really see him stressed is when he's doing that. Mm-hmm. When he's, like, like lining up and he's like, oh, God. Because <laughs> that, that sounds terrifying. Like, I mean, I've, I've read the literature. Like, you can survive for a couple minutes in the vacuum of space, actually, without, like, permanent damage. Right. But it's deeply unpleasant. <laughs> I um, bet. I wouldn't want to do it. Um, so, yeah, just in, in terms of uh, just the, the, the way the book sort of carries that moment out. I don't remember if he shoots him back into the ship in the book, but I do remember that there's a really tense sequence in the book after he's back on the ship where Hal depressurizes the cabin oh, God. on him. And he has to, like, get into this, like, emergency pod booth thing and he has to like get in there and like get himself some oxygen and then he reoxygenates and puts on his helmet and that's when he goes and like shuts down Hal um and god the righteous purpose when he shuts down <laughs> Hal like you are an animal that needs to be put down <laughs> so when when he launches back through the vacuum of space had Hal already killed the scientists i th- think that we see the little monitor with him flatlining and everything <laughs> that was cold it was a dick move. Yeah. You couldn't just keep him under until you get back, <laughs> Hal? You fucking asshole. Ugh. God, I fear the singularity because of Hal. Because of Hal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I kind of, like, I was trying to find a way to read this whole sequence as, like, Dave being ready to ascend as the star child. But, like, I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, no, just it didn't seem that the way cold, the, 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 there, there wasn't anything, like, savage about what he was doing, but there was something just very cold and efficient 
like as soon as he gets into the Hal booth, and I love like all the extreme low angles and how disoriented we are through that whole thing because like the ship's red and it's not working the way it should, so we don't get these straight on shots anymore, and none of this elegant blue Danube shit. It's all <laughs> gonna be like down here looking up his pant leg now um, because nobody knows which which way is up anymore. And I do love uh, cutting back to to Hal's bulb yeah. frequently. Yeah. <laughs> What are you doing, Dave? <laughs> Just uh, that, like the equivalent of a stoic villain, but yeah. even more so. It's so well done. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really good, and I love uh, that. Like, oh, oh, the uh, I'll, I'll get back to that, but uh, <laughs> take a stress pill and think things over. Yeah. <laughs> this robot's a pusher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I I one one thing that occurred to me. Um, actually earlier in the film that i didn't mention was uh you know i i kept being because i'm a big star trek fan i kept thinking about star trek the motion picture um which i really don't like um <laughs> not a big fan of that film i don't think many are yeah i i, I there it has its defenders sure. and like people defend it on the same grounds that people talk about this movie which was like this was the first time people saw the enterprise on the big screen so we're gonna get long loving shots of it and i was like yeah but 2001 they did that and it wasn't boring um <laughs> Depending and who you ask. You can almost like watch this movie and see Robert Wise watching it in his prep for Star Trek and going, that's it. Long ass shots of spacey <laughs> shit. That's what we're going to do. But it works here because first up, the shots are better composed. Mm-hmm. And second, these people are just discovering space. It shouldn't be that big of a deal to Kirk. And his crew. <laughs> like, they've been doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, and that's we, their trip on the 405. <laughs> yeah. Like, we get to share in Dave and Frank's wonder. Well, then just Dave's wonder. Um, but like, with Kirk and Spock and everybody, they should be like, yeah, it's space. We've done this. Like, I've been at this for a while. But uh, yeah, I, I think that this, it's, it's sort of a goofus and gallon of space movies, um, these two films. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the he he goes into the room and he starts just removing memory cores from Hal mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of I had forgotten how like how much the fight's over by the time this starts mm-hmm. like as soon as Hal as soon as Dave's in there like pulling those cores like it's done and then you get the Daisy thing and it's all really <laughs> sad but like you were a crazy ass robot Hal you deserve to die <laughs> like we can't we can't have you around. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's no good. Um, I was probably lucky it was that sympathetic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, then the, the recording comes on as soon as he's done, which is like, here's the secret truth of your mission. Mm -hmm. Now it's up to you, Dave. And that it's Dr. Haywood. (laughs) It was Dr. Haywood, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I ever noticed that before. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. And then, uh, then he, he gets in his pod and he heads over, uh, he heads out on the uh, on the on uh, out to the Stargate. Yeah, and it's super cool. Um, and then I guess we uh, we've only got six minutes left, but we'll talk about that last sequence really really quickly. <laughs> um, what did you think of it? Uh, sort of as I was hinting at earlier, it made a lot more sense to me as part of this this overall media presentation. Yeah. For whereas if you think of it as just a movie, it's sort of like what is the purpose of this? lengthy yeah. sequence like you could accomplish the same thing in terms of moving the plot forward yeah. in a much simpler 
quicker scene. Yeah. But as something that is is still pretty grandiose. Like, I have to say, yeah. watching it on the Blu-ray, it was a lot more sort of textured and purposeful than I remember. And way more engaging. Like, when I was younger, I remember it being very slow mm-hmm. and just... Like, minute after minute of just colors. And me being like, why the fuck am I watching this? Well, um, I remember it being like planes of colors, whereas this, it, as I was saying, it's, it's it feels very textured. Like, there's yeah. waves of lines all over everything. Yeah, it was very cool. In the To give you a quick rundown of what happens in the book, he goes, he has the My God, It's Full of Stars moment, and his little pod gets sucked down. And then he finds himself flying really high over the surface of a world that has all these little, uh, like ports going down into it and then there are also like one or two other ships passing by him Mm -hmm. um alien looking ships and then eventually uh like he's the pod's not moving under its own power he's just being pulled and eventually he uh finds himself inside of that room the same well not the same room that he finds himself in in the film because in the film he shows up in a fucking french chateau with light with light up billy jean floors (laughs) um but in the in the uh book he's there for like a day he gets in and it looks just like an apartment he actually turns on the tv and it's got tv programs and then he goes into the pantry and it's got like brand name foods and stuff but everything is the same blue like paste like all the boxes are are different but everything has the same stuff in it and he's like it's not bad food but it's not great and then he lays down to take a nap and then he turns into the star child um (laughs) So in the film, I really, like, it was the first time I got that, like, overlapping cut thing we do where he keeps seeing his older self and seeing his younger self. And I, I, I think what we're supposed to take from that is that he spends his whole life in this room being pretty well cared for. Um, and then finally, when it's time for him to die, the monolith shows up again and induces his evolution into the star child, mm-hmm. at which point he heads back to Earth. Now, there's a great moment of symmetry in the book where... Uh, at the end of the hominid chapter, after uh, the after Moonwatcher leading leading his band of hominids has scared away the other hominids with the fucking leopard head on a stick, mm-hmm. um, it says like Moonwatcher wasn't sure what to do next, but he would think of something, and it was the first time he would think of something mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And um, when Dave as Starchild heads back to Earth, everyone on Earth launches nukes at him. And he just wills them to cease to be. Um, <laughs> like, it, it makes very clear that he controls all of space and time at mm-hmm. this point. And then the very last lines of the book are, Dave wasn't sure what to do next, but he would think of something. Oh, interesting. Um, and I love that, that. That idea that maybe this isn't the last step. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like a Dr. Manhattan kind of thing. <laughs> it is kind of Dr. manhattan yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely worked way better for me. Um, I... I mean, I, I, I was interested to hear what you thought of it because it worked way better for me because I had read the book mm-hmm. and because I kind of had that grounding. But did you feel like you had a good idea of like what was happening to him? Um, I, I'd say the, the evolutionary aspects of it. A lot of the the last section of the film are because I've, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about this movie for so long. Like, of course, I've, I've heard sort of in, from the, the sequel and what's supposed to be happening. Um I don't know that watching it again this time, having not read the book, I don't know that there was a much clearer narrative path. Like, I feel like I followed it better, but in terms of what the story was trying to say, for me, it it was more of it it expanding into a full media show and, like, the, the star child with the orchestral swell 
it's more of like holy shit, like yeah. what an end to what an experience. Yeah. Then, so, so then I necessarily that, thought like that I was processing like, oh, this is what the monolith did to him. And so it, it was like that media presentation thing you were talking about that you were just so taken with it, it almost didn't matter what the plot was anymore. Yeah. So I, I was able to to follow it more we clearly. Were plot. Yeah, but it, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. By the end of it, I, I did feel like it was almost part of the credits, <laughs> just yeah. like you know, and here's where the fireworks go off and yeah <laughs> i like that i like that a lot um yeah and then he then he shows up and he's a star child and it's super freaky um and it's great <laughs> it's just it's it's this movie elevated itself so intensely in this watching for me like it just blew me away and i feel bad because we're, we we got to wrap up but we i feel like we've covered 20 percent right. of what you can say about this film yeah yeah um like oh god it's just so good watch it every four months guys well also it's so segmented even without the intermission yeah that it, it would be a great watch with friends i feel like oh yeah just because there are so many natural places where it would be easy to pause and yeah. talk about what just happened and, yeah 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 it's uh it's almost like a book club kind of movie um, <laughs> yeah you could make it work there yeah it's uh i mean it, my final analysis it's amazing it 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 opens itself up to you more and more every time you watch it so watch it all the time everybody forever <laughs> um yeah what do you got um well i mean unless you have anything else i guess we'd talk about what we do next time yeah what do you got okay um i mean i guess you said this was our, our sixth quality film in yep. a row yeah uh, I mean, I guess we threw around Miller's Crossing earlier, and okay. why why uh, stop the good process? Okay, good. Whew. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna throw me a curve there. Okay, so <laughs> next uh, next time we're gonna tune in and we're gonna watch Miller's Crossing. Um, I'm excited because I haven't seen Miller's Crossing since I saw it at your place like two years ago. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into my heart. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good reward to look back at the Coens. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. All right, thanks everybody. <laughs>